0: Welcome to the St. Moses Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. St. Moses is a new church sharing the hope of Christ in the heart of Baltimore. If you unfold a quartered map of the city of Baltimore, you'll find us right where the creases intersect. If you have any questions or any way we can help you, please don't hesitate to reach out at info at that's dot org. Now, let's continue with the podcast. This morning's teaching text comes from Jonah chapter 2, and this is reading from the NLT. I'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get down to work. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble. And he answered me, I called to you from the land of the dead, and you, Lord, heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple." I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth, whose gates lock shut forever. But you, O oh Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. I'm gonna pray for us, and my praying now is just, uh, I believe it's a rational outgrowth of my belief that God exists and that God inspired these ancient words to be written. And if if both of those two things are true, then it seems like it only makes sense to ask for his help, for us to get our heads into this uh, ancient text and for us to get our hearts submitted to this ancient text so that it has the authority in our life that it has in reality, so that We are changed from the inside out, becoming more like Jesus. So that's the end to which I'm praying. Father, we just ask that your Spirit, who we believe is already here among us, that you would uh, guide our minds, uh, enliven our imaginations, stir our hearts to enter this ancient Word and help us to submit our lives to it. Would you help us to see the world differently, to behave in the world differently as a result of encountering you and your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Before Baltimore City, our city was known for The Wire. Before it was known for season one of Serial, the podcast, if you don't know, the podcast that made podcasts a thing. Before it was known for Super Bowl thirty-seven. You remember when the Ravens beat the 49ers? Yes, I wish Pastor Sam were here to rub that in. Before Baltimore was known for Babe Ruth playing in the old stadium one block south of where you're sitting. Before all of those things, Baltimore was known for the Star Spangled Banner. You might know the story. Francis Scott Key, a little bit like Jonah, was beneath deck on a ship in the middle of chaos. Key uh, was not in a storm like Jonah was. Key was in the middle of a battle. And as he was there beneath deck, a prisoner on a British gunboat, watching the cannon pummel the little sod and brick battlements at Fort McHenry, I can imagine that like Jonah, he probably thought, I am going to die. So when, as the song says, through the rocket's red glare, Through the bombs bursting in air, he saw that the flag was still there. It gave him hope. It gave him a sense of deliverance, a sense of rescue. And so he penned a song of gratitude, a song about rescue, or so the story goes. And in a sense... Chapter 2 of Jonah is like that because it is a song of rescue. And this is a a refrain, a deliverance song uh, that builds not only inside of the four chapters of this little narrative, Jonah, but it swings up to a great crescendo through the pages of all of the Bible, crescendoing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a Builder and wandering rabbi from the backwater of Galilee. The chapter uh, of our teaching text this morning begins with one verse in prose. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish, saying... And then it launches into a song. So if we were reading this in Hebrew, our... uh, our minds would automatically discern a genre shift from prose into song, from prose into poetry. And so if you are uh, looking at a Bible in your laps or on your phones, you'll see the text is laid out in stanzas as a way of signaling that shift to us. In fact, if you were to just take our reading this morning out of context and to think it were a psalm, you wouldn't be far wrong because, in fact, it it sort of contains little uh, excerpts of psalms and it, uh, in whole, looks quite like a psalm. The punchline of this rescue song comes in verse 9, where Jonah says, For my salvation comes from the Lord, that's the, the name Yahweh, alone. And if you were here last week, this statement won't surprise you, because the narrative has been nudging us in this direction all along. Although Jonah is a prophet of Yahweh, a prophet of the one true God of the Bible, he has uh, been rejecting God's voice and running the other way. And so we saw this storm and we saw that the sailors in chapter 1 verse 5 cried out to their various gods and they were met with silence. And then as the story progressed, we saw that they began to shift their faith and their allegiance toward the one true God of the Bible. Jonah's God, So that at the end of chapter one, they were offering him worship. So this won't surprise us when chapter two, verse nine says, salvation comes from the one true God alone. You can think of it this way, uh, all of the miniature peril and deliverance stories that are sprinkled through the pages of the Bible, especially in kids' Bibles, like we talked about last week. Daniel in the Lion's Den, uh, David and Goliath, each one of these stories is at pains to tell us, now, no matter what intermediate causes are in effect, Ultimately, the Lord alone, Yahweh alone, the one true God of the Bible, is the ultimate source of rescue. God alone saves. Still, more pointedly, if we were reading chapter 2, verse 9 in Hebrew, we'd see that when Jonah sings, My salvation comes from Yahweh, the, the word for salvation there is the word Yeshua, which you might already know, is just the Hebrew form of Jesus. It's almost like this little four-chapter story tucked away in the book of the 12 is setting us up for hundreds of years later when the four gospel writers are in effect going to ask the question, so so you're looking for the salvation that comes from God alone? You're looking for the rescue that comes from God alone? Well, Well, let me introduce you to him. Yeshua is his name. I realize not all of us in this room love poetry. Some people turn off the moment you hear roses are red. So this is what I'm going to do at the top end for a few minutes. Just I'm going to unpack some of the content of this poetry so that as we start to apply it, uh, it will make sense. But I'm not going to linger here for too long. There are two main ideas that repeat in this rescue song that Jonah sings. The first one is this. It's very simple. It's that God has heard his cries and has rescued him from the very threshold of death. It's that same essential idea that God has heard his cries and rescued him from the brink of death that gets repeated in verse 2 and 3 and also in verses 5 and 6. We're not going to look at each of those in detail, but look with me now at verse 2. It says, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. If you already have chapter one under your belt, if you were here last week, then you can't miss the contrasts here. Remember, in chapter one, God called Jonah. Jonah, uh, chapter one, verse two. Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh. And, and it's like, not only does Jonah not answer God when God calls, but Jonah effectively goes, la, 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 puts, puts his fingers in his ears and runs the opposite direction. And now, when Jonah needs God and calls to God while while God might be justified in doing exactly the same thing this is sort of a wondrous merciful proclamation that isn't it fantastic that God is not like we are that he doesn't respond in kind that he doesn't say well Jonah when you called when I called to you instead God hears and he listens. That's the first contrast. The second contrast, is you'll remember, with the sailors in chapter 1, verse 5, calling out to their various gods to aid them in the midst of the chaotic storm. They were met with silence because their gods were unable to answer. But the God of the Bible... Jonah's God is able to answer. His, his ears are always open to the cries of those in need. He listens and he responds. So that's uh, the first major idea here. If, if you saw that line in verse two, the land of the dead, that's the Hebrew concept of Sheol. It's hard for us to pin down with any sort of detail or certainty what exactly people in the Old Testament believed Uh, about what there is, what happens after you die. More than likely, there was uh, significant variance in the beliefs uh, then as there is today. But we can say, at the general level, that the people in the Old Testament had this concept of Sheol, a state of deadness, a sort of non-existence or partial existence in an underworld of death and that's the idea that crops up again in verse 6 you'll see this uh, wonderful imagery of the, the roots of the mountains don't you love that that's that's uh, sheol imagery and also of the the gates of the underworld or um I, I, the NLT here says uh the gates of whose the gates in the earth whose gates lock shut forever there the the hebrew is um, bars in the land those are Sheol images. And in fact, some of that ancient Near Eastern Sheol imagery uh, is still around by the time you get to the New Testament. So some of you will remember that time when Jesus takes his followers on uh, a little road trip out of the countryside of Galilee to the nearest sort of den of debauchery and lasciviousness that he can find, a place uh, a few days journey called the Caesarea Philippi. And if you've ever been there there's uh this sort of this huge cliff and at the base of the cliff is just a gaping hole, a big maw out of which uh flows this spring. And allegedly people uh, sometimes referred to that hole as uh, the gate the gateway to the underworld. And and you might remember it's uh what is it? Matthew 16 where Peter, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter, or Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you. God has revealed this to you. And then he says, right there, at the, the, the gates of this underworld, in this den, uh, this, the center of licentiousness, he says, on this rock, Peter... I will build my church and the what is it the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So some of that imagery is still around in the New Testament. So these images are layering. It's it's saying that that Jonah was uh Jonah was as good as dead. One commentator who's got a flair for translation put it this way he said it's like if you were on a search and rescue party looking for an avalanche victim and it's gone 10 minutes since the slide and you know that like the chances of survival are just falling off precipitously and at that moment as you're probing around you you hit something hard and you dig down and you find uh, the victim and you pull her out and she is fine and you say this is incredible she should be dead she was six feet under It's that same sort of stacking of images and metaphors to say that Jonah was as good as dead. Jonah was a total goner. Jonah was basically afloat in the middle of the ocean. He was basically shark bait, and then he called out to God for rescue and got swallowed by a big fish. Now, that irony would have been even greater for the ancient peoples. Like, there was no Michael Phelps of Joppa. These were not a a free willy people. Both these things, open ocean and large predatory fish, were more terrifying, if you can imagine, to the people of the ancient world than they are even to us today. So think Jaws or Deep Blue Sea or Sharknado 1 through 15 or however many they are. Whatever B-movie shark flick you want to think of, big hungry fish in the open ocean, is that is how people die. It is not their rescue. And so the poetry here is drawing out the irony here for you poetry nerds. Um, Verse 1 in prose says, And then Jonah called out, prayed to the Lord from inside the fish. And then in verse 2 it says, The Lord has delivered him literally from the belly of Sheol. The thing which he might have thought would bring him death has in fact saved him. I know you think I'm belaboring this point, but it's for a reason. We'll come back to it later. That's the first main idea, that God has heard Jonah from the edge of death and has rescued him. The second main idea that the rescue song picks up is this sort of longing, this aching for God's temple. This might seem a little silly at first, like imagine this guy inside of a fish and he's wishing he could be somewhere else. Like what's he going to wish for? Is he going to wish for Maui? Is he going to wish for like a Futon and Netflix, what, but what he is wishing for, what his heart is hungering for is to be in church. He, he aches toward the temple. Let me try to unpack that for us a little bit. Here's what I think is going on. Many of the Psalms also have this same sort of yearning for the temple because it was the bricks and mortar locus of the manifestation of God's presence. God is everywhere. Jonah has already... The book has already kind of made this point that God is omnipresent. You go to the, the middle of the Mediterranean and God is there with the storm. You go to the, the bars of the underworld, the gates of death, and God is there to hear the cry. He's everywhere. But if your buddy said to you, can you drop a pin for me on God's presence, on the, on the omnipresent spirit of God, you would have dropped a pin on the Jerusalem temple, the so-called Beit El, God's house. And this yearning for the focal point of God's presence and life with him in his temple became especially poignant during the self-reflection. Remember last week we talked about parables and mirrors and, and self-examination and self-reflection. It became especially poignant during the self-reflection that God's people did when they were in exile in Babylon. Hang with me for a moment. No, it feels abstruse, but I'm going somewhere. Imagine that you are one of the exiles. You've been carried off away from your home country, away from your culture, away from the people and the places of, that you love, and you're sitting there in Babylon. You're experiencing the oppression of the Babylonians. You're, you're almost despairing of life itself. And then you overhear a dad teaching his kids Jonah's song. And not only you sort of lean in a little bit, like trying not to be too much of a creeper. Not only does that song remind you that God hears the desperation cries of his people, but it also reminds you that the very thing you thought was your perishing could turn out to be God's preservation for you. I'll say that again. The thing that feels to you like it is death could in fact turn out to be God's deliverance for you. As much as the exile was a direct result of the disobedience of God's people, it was also, the exile was also God's means of preserving a remnant of the exiles. As much as being at sea in a storm and being swallowed by a large predatory fish was a direct result of Jonah's disobedience. It was nonetheless God's means of preserving Jonah. So, rescue and exile. The threshold of death and the salvation of God. These are the themes of the psalm that Jonah sings inside the fish. I want to spend the rest of our time sort of unpacking this for our lives. To do that, we're going to go back to the irony of being saved from death at sea by being eaten by a predatory fish. Whether you are reading this as history, I, Jonah somehow managed to, to survive for three days inside a fish's belly, uh, long enough for it to swim all the way to the shore and then regurgitate him, or whether you're reading this figuratively, the same point is being made here. This is rescue when none seemed possible by a means that seemed just as terrifying as the alternative. Rescue, or salvation, whichever word you want to use, can be very uncomfortable. Rescue can look and feel like death, but in fact, lead to deliverance. Let me make the case to you briefly. Remember the salvation of Paul or Saul? His name gets changed to Paul. This guy who wrote a ton of the New Testament. This is what his rescue, his deliverance looked like. Do you remember it? He was made blind, physically blind, physically disabled, and then had to rely Upon the mercy of a sworn enemy, a man named Ananias. This is a terrorist in dire need and all of a sudden placed at the mercy of the terrorized. Uncomfortable? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Dangerous? Yeah, sure, sure. Is this the pathway of Paul's salvation? Beyond question. Or... Think of David's rescue, as David all those years was being preserved from the hatred of Saul, different Saul. Do you remember how it happened? David's preservation looked like the discomfort of daily giving up. His ambition for the throne for himself and of daily cultivating uh, patience that although it had been promised to him, that time was not yet here. And it looked like the danger of hiding out in caves and wadis. And it, it looked like the humiliation of drooling on his beard so that the enemies among whom he was hiding would figure that he was harmless because he was crazy. That's what preservation looked like for David. That was, that was deliverance for David. This is more than a, an anecdotal sampling. This is typical of salvation in the Bible. In, in the Exodus, which was the paradigm of God's salvation prior to Jesus, it was terrifying enemy armies in front, and it was unswimmable seas behind. It was, think of Naaman the Assyrian. For him, salvation from his leprosy was the humiliation of going to the land of the occupied, of requesting their help, of being unable to pay for it, or not allowed to pay for it, and then of having to plunge in the stinking muck of an inferior river. Rescue can be very uncomfortable. It's always humbling, and it frequently comes at us like death Itself. Of course, when the Bible uses the word salvation or rescue, it can mean different things. Most often, when we use the word salvation in Protestant church circles, we're meaning justification. Because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross... Anyone, any of us who call out to him for salvation, who trust in him, who lean the weight of our lives on him will be declared justified by God. No condemnation, instantaneous deliverance because of Jesus. Somebody can say hallelujah, but but if you stop to think about it, that salvation, that justification comes through death. It's Jesus' death in our place. And it takes the humbling of our hearts to confess our guilt, to acknowledge our need that like Jonah, we are powerless, powerless to save ourselves and to lean on God for rescue. So justification, while it is the most glorious thing, it nonetheless comes through death and discomfort. Often, when the Bible uses the word salvation, it's also talking about sanctification, becoming holy, becoming like Jesus. The old English preacher John Owen, I think it was, commentating, commenting on uh, Romans chapter 8, said, By the power of the Holy Spirit, we must be killing our sin, or it will be killing us. It's a, it's a dogfight between two different types of death. It's a dogfight between drowning and being gobbled up, but only one type of death leads to life. Jesus himself, when he's teaching his young students what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, says this in Luke chapter 9. Uh, put this on the screen, chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. If any of you wants to be my follower... You must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Our sanctification also comes through a sort of death, a a death to self, death to sin, death to all those false gods that the sailors had and that we have that clamor and advertise for our trust and allegiance, but that cannot ultimately give us life. Let's pause. I'm not drawing this out just to make sort of a tidy theological connection for you. I'm drawing this out because if we don't realize that our very salvation is uncomfortable, then we're likely to do everything in our power to avoid it. I'll say that again. I'm drawing this out because if we don't realize that our salvation is uncomfortable, then we're likely to do everything in our power to avoid it. I would never choose to be swallowed alive unless it were the only thing that could save me. Could it be that there are Parts of your life where the Spirit of God is at work, but it's so deeply uncomfortable that you just shut it down, numb it out, or head the other direction. Are there maybe things in our lives that we need to die to in order to receive life back in its place from the hand of Jesus? Or maybe for some of us, we're just terrified by the prospect of trusting Jesus in the first place. In our cultural moment, the name of Jesus, the concept of Yeshua through God alone, salvation through Yahweh alone is, is so enmeshed with all the hurt that's been caused by people brandishing the Bible, that it feels like to trust him, to lean the weight of your life on him, feels like rappelling over a cliff edge, like You can barely trust that if you put all your weight on this rope, it will hold you because all you've known is standing on your own two feet. Faith is humbling. It's a sort of death to self, but it's the only way to be rescued. That might take a little bit more thinking about this week. My guess is if... Something is stirring in your heart or mind. And probably the next thing that's going to stir in your heart or mind is going to try to distract you from this. So it might be set a reminder on your phone or just carve out some time this afternoon or later this week to intentionally think about the discomfort of rescue. And whether there might be some ways that you are avoiding it in your life. The last thing I want to do together is to notice the location of this Song of Rescue in the larger sweep of Jonah's story. There are four chapters. This is chapter two. Chapter two out of four. Think about your classic Disney or Pixar movie. Where in the storyline does the rescue occur? normally near the end, right? The story introduces some characters, it, it introduces a problem, it builds some tension and intrigue, and then it resolves in some sort of rescue near the end. Because rescue is the goal, rescue is at the end of the story. But in Jonah, as in the Bible more broadly, rescue is at the start, because we're, we're not merely saved from death, we are saved for life. The the rescue Preserves and prepares us to participate with God in his great project of making all things new. So Jonah goes through this ordeal of rescue. Jonah is preserved from certain death so that he can now obey God and partner with God in the thing that he had been asked to do before he rejected it in the first place. Now he's finally ready to join God in God's work. Now he has a fresh and personal experience of God's grace in his life. Now he is ready to do the thing that he was asked to do in chapter 2, verse 1. Get up, or chapter 1, verse 2. Get up and go to Nineveh. If you have experienced God's rescue in the justification sense, if you're undergoing God's rescue in the sanctification sense, which part of God's work in the world is he preparing you to join him in? Because he is preparing you. If you've been rescued or are being rescued, it is for something. It is for partnering with him. One of the, other, one of the unhelpful legacies of the otherwise, in many ways, effective evangelism strategies, mass evangelism strategies of mid-century last is that it effectively gives us a bus ticket conception of salvation. If I pray a certain prayer, I get a bus ticket to heaven that I put in my pocket and then the rest of my life is lived as it would have been anyway until the moment of my death when I get out this bus ticket that I hope takes me to heaven. And if that is our view of salvation, then it robs us of any sense of preservation and of formation through our salvation for participation with God in his mission. It misses out on all the discomfort. And one of the ways I see God's grace to us right now is that there is almost unavoidable Discomfort in your lives. Pandemic, racial injustice, ruptured personal relationships, broken health, job loss. All of these things. The last several decades, as Christians from the majority world have come to the West, often to get theological education, in many cases they are struck by how... Thin, how shallow faith is in the West. And often it's expressed in these terms Your faith is thin, your faith is shallow because you are so comfortable, so comfortable. We haven't been formed. We haven't been formed through deliverance. We haven't been formed by preservation. We haven't been shaped by our rescue to participate with God in what He is doing in the world. I'm not a CrossFitter. It might surprise you by looking at me. I'm not a CrossFitter, but uh, in the CrossFit world, there's an acronym called AMRAP. As many repetitions as possible. It basically means find something really miserable to do and keep doing it until your body fails. And most sports, most physical disciplines have their version of the AMRAP. In swimming, it was the hundreds free on minute intervals. And a hundred free on a minute interval on a minute is not hard, or two or three is not hard. But after you get in a few, your heart rate is chewing through the oxygen in your bloodstream faster than you can resupply it, gasping for breath every fifth stroke. And even at that point, your muscles start to respire anaerobically and give build up lactic acid crystals in your legs. And so your body is just screaming. And when you came to that time in the practice for hundreds free on minute intervals, it was like clockwork. People would get out like half the team. It's, I got to go to the bathroom coach. And the people who stayed weren't always the most talented swimmers. They weren't always those, those with the best native gifting or the, the, the best technique. These were the people who knew how to and were learning how to suffer, how to dig deep. And of course, that was precisely what was needed when it came to the race, to the moment of trial. When you are forced to undergo discomfort, beyond what you think you can bear, often you find that you can bear more than you thought you could. That is great, but it's not the gospel. The gospel says, although you might find you can do more than you thought you could, although you might find you can dig deeper than you ever knew you could, there comes a point where you come to the end of yourself where you begin to rely on Christ. The Apostle Paul, whose own deliverance story we talked about already, puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. He will continue to rescue us. This is the gospel, friends, that we are preserved. Our salvation often comes with great discomfort. It often looks to us like death itself. But in our deliverance, when we embrace the discomfort, when we come to the end of ourselves and find ourselves leaning upon Christ, we are formed to participate with Him in the renewal of all things. And some of you right now are doing AMRAPs of grief and loss. Some of you right now are am wrapping political animus and hatred. Some of you right now are AMRAPing isolation and broken relationships. Some of you right now are AMRAPing racial trauma. There is grief and discomfort right now. And my my hope for us, my prayer for us, is that as we learn to embrace the discomfort and to cling to Christ through it, that we will find that he is enough, that we are being preserved, and that in our preservation, he is shaping us. And I know, I know, that we're resistant to asking for that help. We're resistant. It's, we are discipled in our culture to be self-sufficient, to think I need to be doing it on my own. But that is that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. In fact, I was trying to think of a metaphor, a relational metaphor to let us know that it's okay to call out to God for help from the, what feels like the The gates of death again and again and again we don't want to feel needy we don't want to be the needy one we don't want to be a burden and i was trying to think of a relational metaphor to tell us that it's okay to do that with god And i thought i would say well it's like a parent with a child parent never gets exasperated by a kid's neediness and then i ran that through in my own life and i thought well it's not quite true (laughs) it's not quite true Even parents get exhausted by the need of their kids. But not God. See, there's there's an ontological difference between creator and creature that is totally different than the parody between uh, a a parent and a child. The, the, The moment that you cry out to God in desperate need and, and realize that you are utterly dependent upon Him. You are shifting for perhaps the first moment in your life. You are aligning with the reality of the universe and turning away from what is really just our baptized self-dependence which is, is just a functional atheism. If you struggle feeling that you are too needy, that you think Jesus must be tired of hearing your cries for help from death's door, from the gates of the underworld. Hear these wonderful words from Dane Ortlund's gem of a book, Gentle and Lowly. We'll end with this. He writes, Jesus does not get flustered or frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. End quote. O St. Moe's, that we would learn in the midst of our discomfort to lean upon God, for our deliverance, that in our preservation we would realize that he is shaping us, he is forming us, he is rescuing us so that we could participate with him in his great mission in the world, the renewal of all things. Let me pray for us.